Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 56 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, Draftneck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range. Uh, we got no games to talk about. Season's over. You guys know that. I don't need to explain too much about what happened there. But in the week plus of our little break here before we started, I guess, technically season two. I don't know how we're going to do it, but it is episode 56. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff going on in the Mets world because why Why wouldn't there be? Postseason baseball, Mets don't slow down regardless of not being in the playoffs. Luis Rojas gone. We got Paul D. Podesta rumors. We got the GM and president of baseball ops and everything kind of search for the New York Mets. We've got manager rumors. We've got arbitration, salary, payroll talks. We've got Marcus Stroman talking about free agency on Twitter. We've got a lot of New York Mets news to cover. So, of course, that's exactly what we're going to do. Me and James, talking about everything you need to hear. We're going to be moving to a weekly schedule, like we said on the last episode. I don't know if Mondays are necessarily going to stick, but it's going to be once a week. You're going to figure out our schedule at some point, just as we do. So thank you guys for sticking along. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the podcast, as you always do. Make sure you guys are following us on Twitter and Instagram, at MetsUp, as well as TikTok, at MetsUp. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you like video content, at MetsUp Podcast. You'll be able to see us talking there, as well as listen to us. And if you're listening to us, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, you will be able to find us. So make sure you're following over there. Drop us a five-star review. Drop us a rating. Whatever you can. It does help support the podcast. James. Luis Rojas gone. I mean, let's talk about that first. I think that should be the first thing we address since we didn't get in the last episode. It happened, what, 40 minutes after we dropped the, the last episode? So It happened when I was about halfway through the edit of it, which was fun. That was great. Yeah, bad timing for sure. Um, how are you feeling about Rojas being gone? I mean, both of us have been pretty positive about Luis all year, but we also kind of knew that the writing was on the wall for him. Definitely. And just based on the timing of the last time we spoke and how foregone it always was, especially over the last six weeks of the season, that Rojas was going to be gone. This feels like it happened an entire year ago. Like, I can't believe that we've watched, like, multiple games of the division series and Luis Rojas hasn't been the manager the whole time. But you do the line all the time. Luis Rojas might not have been the problem, but he definitely was not the solution. We trademarked that for the Mets Up podcast. Only we can say that. No one else can. And just, it's uh, it's fine that he's gone. I, I feel the same way about him leaving that I felt about him staying. It's fine. I, I have no strong opinion on Luis Rojas, nor his, exist, his no longer existence as the Mets manager. Yeah, I think that was a really good way to put it, too. Like, I, I feel the same way as if he was here. It's, it's whatever. At this point, Luis Rojas didn't do the job that we needed him to, whether or not he had the proper tools and the proper, you know, situation that's still, you know, up for decision. I feel like a lot of people forget too, that Luis Rojas was like kind of the interim manager per se, like Beltran was supposed to be the guy and he got canned before he even managed the game because the New York Mets 
And Rojas kind of just stepped in because they need someone. It was spring training. They need to get someone out there. Rojas was one of the candidates that they were considering, and you weren't going to get someone outside basically in the middle of spring training to come take over this team. So Rojas ended up being that guy. Um, He did a fine job. He didn't do great. He didn't do terribly, I don't think, by any means. But like you said, kind of just got to move on. And I think like we knew that was coming. So I'm fine with it. The next question it leads us into, though, is who are we going to get? Who are we going to get? Are we going to get, you know, someone new? Are we going to get someone with experience? Which way are we leaning here? I really don't know. I don't have a clue. Me neither. It's kind of hard to figure that. A lot of times when these managers pop up across baseball, it's either a retread who you know stinks or a guy you never heard of that people have to make up opinions on. Luis Rojas was one of those. Luis Rojas managed the Mets, which for the Mets, this is saying a lot. Generally for organizations, isn't a lot, but this is one of the most turbulent 18 months that this organization has seen but it's not really just because of the organization because of like COVID he walked into this second year as a manager by happenstance right yeah like if last season wasn't a full wasn't a 60 game year let's say let's say 2020 was a full 162 game season you probably would have had a better idea of him as a manager the organization would have been better able to evaluate him and you probably wouldn't have brought him back for the entire other full season but since it was only 60 games you're not going to let an interim manager loose after 60 games that's not really fair to him or anybody especially when he didn't he wasn't so bad that it was like we gotta get this guy out of here right now because i don't think that possibility can even exist for the modern major league manager because there's so many other people pulling strings and Luis Rojas just turned 40 years old and he did some things that I think that we'd want for the next manager to do I thought he handled the media largely well for an inexperienced younger manager in New York City that's something that we've seen previous mess managers struggle with mightily Uh, Luis Rojas seemed to connect very well with players which in the role of the modern manager that seems to be one of the most important and one of the um, one of the largest areas of separation between guys who are good and bad. You see guys like Dusty Baker and Tony Larusa excelling, even though the game has kind of passed them by with teams that are very successful, albeit different, different, uh, different philosophically in terms of analytically forward. But you kind of have to massage this modern managerial role into what you make it out to be. And we're not really going to know who should be in play for this role for the Mets until we get a president of baseball operations and a general manager in place and we understand the full direction of this front office and organization and who they need to complete their puzzle as the manager on the ground floor. Yeah, it feels like it's going to be really tough to try and figure out who the manager is going to be without the guy who's in charge of the manager and is going to be making a lot of the actual decisions that go on outside of the in-game stuff. It's kind of what we saw with Luis Rojas this year. I mean, the Mets kind of didn't really have a GM, and I feel like that could also be part of the reason why Luis Rojas wasn't given the tools to necessarily succeed as well as he could have is because we had Jared Porter, who then got fired before the season, and then we had Zach Scott, who then got a DUI for being a drunk. I mean, there have been so many, like, little different changes inside of what's been going on for Luis Rojas. I mean, even we had Brody Van Wagenen. I mean, we had so many different things, so many different pieces there. He really wasn't given the proper tools to succeed. That being said, the players on the field were very good. We do know that we had talent on the field and we did not get the most out of it. So there's someone that's got to be held, I guess, responsible there. And Let's be honest, we're not cutting Francisco Lindor. We're not cutting Jeff McNeil. We're not cutting guys who underperform. It usually falls on the manager, and I think that's what happened with Luis Rojas. How many times in the history of professional sports have we seen a manager or a head coach of a team outlast an owner? 
Like, how often will an ownership change hands and the manager stays put? Like, this was always going to be a weird situation for Rojas. And I think they were just kind of hoping that he caught lightning in a bottle because he was so familiar with all these players all season long. And things would have happened in the manner which they would have forced their hand to keep him on board. But it just didn't. And yeah, this this was a bizarre situation for a manager of the Mets. He w- Did you read that ESPN article where, like, a lot of the players, they said some stuff about, like, leadership and just, like, kind of the Mets whole clubhouse atmosphere right now which was a little eye-opening i did i thought it was kind of peculiar that so many guys attach their names to certain things in that article which i guess does make a little bit of sense because most of these guys have been very made very aware that their jobs are not secure and like half of them are free agents anyway but yeah i thought that was interesting reed do you have any any fun quotes from there you want to you want to spit yeah i mean the two that seemed to really stick out were jeff mcneil and aaron loops so loop was you know just talking about like the whole atmosphere of the Mets and here's what he said he said I think it's probably the one guy we might have been missing this year is the guy who says okay that's enough it's time to get down to business because we all know everybody's trying and you always get the rah-rah next game you got this stuff but at some point you need okay enough it's time to go now and that kind of builds into stuff that like me and you saw early in the year and mentioned early in the year which was about how this team just kind of lacked a leader there was no true leader And it's funny because if there is one guy who feels like is like so like not okay with just existing, it's Jeff McNeil. And he even had a quote in this article, which is where he said, we don't really have one guy who's going after people. Maybe it's something we need to do. Is it essential win? Maybe, maybe not. He goes, I've never really had that on the Mets. Three or four years, I've never really had that. And that's, I think, a super interesting quote is that it seems like the Mets, while this locker room is so great, they lacked that leadership role, and maybe that's where Luis Rojas was truly lacking in that he had the guys back. He was a player manager, but when it came down to business, it didn't seem like there was ever like a we got to step this shit up kind of thing. There also was probably an issue of um, like stability and comfort because, like we said, this entire situation that made Luis Rojas the Mets manager for 100, 222 games was kind of by happenstance. So maybe he didn't really have the... Uh, the confidence or the gusto to actually take control, grab somebody by the collar and tell them something because he always knew himself. He was on unstable footing. And if he upset the wrong people at the wrong time, he himself would have been out. Of course, he is out anyway. And then possibly his lack of um, his lack of fire led to his ultimate demise. But or maybe he just wasn't the right fit personality-wise for a locker room like this. We've said it time and time again. The Mets team is constructed in a strange way in the fact that there's no obvious leader. Pete is the homegrown guy who plays very well, but he's kind of a goofball. It's hard to honestly take him seriously. Jeff McNeil, while he has the fire, he didn't produce enough this year to really be uh, pulling people aside. And he's also like almost too much of a hard-ass to a fault. No, and he is like a hard-ass to a fall it's kind of I mean you just want your leader to be more like the calm cool and collective type but not saying that Jeff McNeil can't be a leader I think he can be a leader and probably should be a leader for this team moving forward but you kind of need that like David Wright mindset where like everything is crystal everything is fine but you're still not afraid to call a guy out when need be you remember the time that he put his arm around Matt Harvey when Matt Harvey was acting like an asshole or when he he went to Syndergaard when Syndergaard went and got a sandwich after he pitched in spring training. He's like, no, no, no. You come back out and you watch the rest of this game. Like, that's not how we do it around here. There just needs to be someone who's kind of just setting everybody straight, keeping everybody in their place, and also making sure that everybody's on the same wavelength of, we're here to win a World Series. We're here to win a championship. That's kind of what the Mets are missing right now. I think everyone knows we want to win a championship. I don't think any players out there are like, oh, we're not, who cares? But like, it's just got that's got to be the end goal for everybody at the end of the day. But of course, but then again, you look up and down this team, like who's the longest tenured Met? <laughs> Dom Smith. 
Like, Pete, Jacob like these DeGrom. are the longest. These are the longest. Is Jacob Degrom? You're right, but these are the longest and Syndergaard apparently. But you, your leader can't be a starting pitcher. He plays once every five days. There just hasn't been a guy on this team long enough to really assume that role. And I think everyone kind of expected Lindor to come in and assume that role. But I don't think that his leadership style necessarily jived with a lot of the people who were already here. You know, like it's just like yeah, it's, it's intense positivity. And that is hard when he himself was playing like shit for two months. Yeah, it's really, really tough as well to be the new guy and just take over a locker room that is so close and tight. And I'm sure that he didn't want to and no one else wanted to either. Like, I think he probably knew that it'd be better for him to, again, ease himself into that role, to wade into the pool. I'm sure by next season, the year after that, he'll be a leader, he'll be leading by example, and that'll be something this team wants and needs. But for 2021, there was... No way that Francisco Lindor could have just walked in and been like, I'm the captain now. No, and I th- I wonder if that's what the Mets are going to do with the manager search, is look for a guy who's going to kind of be that leader. I know it's it's tough to have your manager be that guy, because especially nowadays, it seems like people are moving more towards like player managers and guys who can just kind of be told what to do, as opposed to like the old school Terry Collins, like, this is the way it's going to be. This is how it's going to work. You're going to listen to me because I'm the manager. And that's kind of what I alluded to before. There is a school of thought, something that I'm starting to agree with in modern baseball, where the manager is really just like the captain of culture. Like you want a guy who's going to keep everybody in check because modern managers don't do really shit in terms of baseball. Your analytics team, your president of baseball operation, general manager, you're getting spreadsheets. You're knowing your matchups. You're knowing your moves to make. You're knowing when to do what and why and when. But you look at these other guys like Kevin Cash, and I want, I'll want i call Hinch this as well. These are leaders of men. These are guys who stand in the corner of the dugout and they cross their arms and you don't really want to fuck with them. I think that is more what the Mets need. And I look at a guy like Pat Murphy, the bench coach of the Brewers, who just has like a baseball face. He's rugged. That dude is tough looking. So rugged baseball guy. And he got to the finish line with the Mets in 2020, but was beat out by, uh, I think, both Eduardo Perez and Carlos Beltran. Yeah. And... He just seems like a guy who's been in a winning culture, who's been a part of a very successful organization, and who was a catcher, who we've seen just from like the recent history of baseball managers translate kind of well, leaving out Brad Osmus, of course, even though he is going to probably be in the Mets shortlist as well. The Mets probably need a guy like that who is reputable, who can walk in and immediately command respect. Not that Luis Rojas didn't, but he did not play professional baseball and didn't really have any... Um, any prior big league dugout experience besides being the quality control coach for the Mets? Well, one of the guys that I particularly love is Joe McEwing. And I love him for a couple of reasons. Joe McEwing, if you guys remember, former New York Met, he was a utility man. He was, you know, a bench player. He was great depth. We love Joe McEwing here. And the reason I love Joe McEwing as a player was because he was fucking crazy. He was nuts. He was a psycho. If you guys remember when, like, Mike Piazza got hit in the head and the whole Roger Clemens thing, he was always the first guy out of the dugout looking to scrap. I mean, this dude definitely is, like, going to be a player's manager, but also, like, he's a little crazy, and I feel like you got to have a little crazy sometimes. Terry Collins was a little crazy. I know he wasn't the greatest manager by any means, but he kept the players in check. That's 100% sure. That was one of the videos that blew up on our Twitter was posting about Terry Collins keeping the players in check, but he's a guy who's been in Chicago. He's been a bench coach or a third base coach. He's been a coach for a very long time now, baseball guy. It always seems like his name is swirling around rumors, but it seems like he never ends up getting that job. I don't know the reasoning behind it, but I would imagine that Joe McEwing, one who was a former Met and seemed to love New York, would be more than happy to come to the Mets and be the manager if given the opportunity. Again, this is all just rumors. We have no actual info because it doesn't seem like anyone's going to be picked before a GM or a president of baseball operations is. But SNY threw out a list of a bunch of different guys, 
And uh, there's some interesting names on there, to say the least. One name from that list I like more than basically all the other ones is Miguel Cairo for similar reasons that you mentioned about McEwing. Miguel Cairo was also a utility guy. He didn't really play that much as a major leaguer, but he was always well-respected by everybody. He was always very knowledgeable. Miguel Cairo was the guy during every single radio broadcast who were like, if you got to look at a player across Major League Baseball, he's going to be a manager one day. One was Alex Cora, and two was Miguel Cairo. Always, without fail. And along with Joe McEwing, Cairo also has exposure to New York baseball and the New York media scene. And I think that's vitally, vitally important to being a manager of the Mets or of the Yankees, which is kind of one of the reasons they probably went with Aaron Boone originally. And they'll probably get another ex-player this offseason when they let Boone go. But I like the fact that Cairo, like McEwing, was always a little bit crazy, like you said. And I think that fits this Mets roster well because everyone's so chill and so friendly, bro. Like, you need something to sync that all together. Who's a bit of a nut job? Like, like Joe McEwing is the kind of guy who, after a bad loss, is going to throw a chair in the locker room. I want a little bit of that sometimes. Miguel Cairo, I think, would definitely... I mean, while he, again, seemed pretty chill, but I think he would also have been prone to punch a wall. Yes. Like, I want that. I want that as a manager. But some teams, I don't want that as a manager. Like, teams that have more fire, I want a guy at the top who's more relaxed and chill. Like, I think personality-wise, someone like Rojas would blend well with a team like the White Sox because the team has some loud personalities to begin with. That's why a guy like La Russa, probably for all of his faults, legally, on the field, everything the guy does, like he's probably a decent manager for that team because there's a lot of young players with big personalities, and he's one of the most respected people in the history of baseball. Whether he warrants that respect or not, he does get it. This Mets team, I don't think, would do very well with, like, I mean, ah, maybe they would. I, don't, I threw this name out to you over text this week, and you jumped out of my throat. But I don't, I don't think Clint Hurdle would be oh. the absolute worst choice for this Mets team. Oh, I, I don't. I, I don't. I think that would be – there's only, like – so there was, like, this weird shortlist given by SNY, and Clint Hurdle was on it. There's only two guys on there that I would rather – or I'd let least rather have. Can I guess who yeah, they are? Yeah, give a guess. Give a guess. A hundred percent, Buck Showalter. It's actually not. I prefer Buck over what? Clint Hurdle. You prefer Buck over? Fuck you. I prefer Buck over Clint Hurdle. Buck Showalter at least has like some sort of success, albeit not great. Clint Hurdle. Clint Hurdle was in the playoffs like six years ago. Yeah, with he stinks. The Pirates. Clint, Clint Hurdle stinks. The Pirates. He dragged the Neil Huntington Pirates to a couple consecutive playoff appearances. You're being an asshole. When about MVP it. Andrew McCutcheon was there. That's fine. How many like, one MVP candidate put you in the playoffs? It's bullshit. But anyway. Buck Walter's not one of them. I'll give you another guess, though, because I think I think we all know who this one's going to be. It's it's Mr. Shoe Polish, Todd Zeal. <laughs> yeah, Todd Zeal was listed on this. There's That's just S&Y being like, we're going to throw one of our employees on there. So help me God, if Todd Zeal is the manager of the New York Mets, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll walk away. I don't know what I'm going to do. Some of the other names listed on here I also like, too. Carlos Beltran's getting a lot of heat. He's also the favorite, I believe, in Vegas right now on the betting odds. Mm-hmm. Not that that really means anything, but... It means a little bit. Carlos Beltran could come back and take this team over. I mean, A.J. Hinch has gotten a job back. Alex Cora got his job back. Carlos Beltran was a player who cheated. I mean, are we really going to still punish this guy for being a part of a team that cheated? I, I don't know. I think it's very hard to compare Beltran to Cora or Hinch well, because both won. of them had World Series rings. Granted, those World the- Series rings have huge <laughs> asterisks next to them because of the cheating scandal. Just based on the fact that there were multiple teams cheating, it's still impressive to win as a cheater. Yeah. Like, if a cheater beats a cheater, it's an even series. That is true. And the Red Sox probably did that with the Astros. But Beltran is a guy who's never managed a game. And to go back and retract originally firing him after these allegations, after you still have no knowledge of what he is like as a manager, especially because I see him as similar in personality style and leadership style to Luis Rojas as being kind of cool, 
kind of calm, very reserved. I, again, I don't think that's exactly what this team needs. And that's why a guy like Glenn Hurdle, as bad as he probably is in terms of baseball, he's not going to do anything. Dusty Baker is on that team just to hang out with the guys, keep everybody loose. I'm sure they give him like one decision a week. Like, Dusty, you get one gut a week. Use it wisely. <laughs> While Dusty Baker can't win a playoff series for his life, the dude always has first place teams. Clint Hurdle, I don't know, man. He just, Clint Hurdle feels like, like I know you're saying like you would take him because you think the modern manager doesn't really actually do much. I don't think Clint Hurdle is willing to be that modern manager. Then he's not going to be the manager then. That's simple as that. But but worried, I would offer him the role. But I'm worried that he'll just like put on, he'll put on a nice face and he'll say, yeah, I'll do it. And then he gets it and he's like, mutiny. <laughs> Good data. Clint Hurdle you... will lead a good mutiny. That's one thing for sure. I don't understand how you can have this romantic view of Terry Collins as a manager and think Clint Hurdle's atrocious. Well, I don't they're, want to ter- me. They're basically the Terry same Collins guy, one taller. <laughs> I don't want Terry Collins back. That's the big thing here. So, as much as I love Terry, I don't want him back by any means. I just remember that video of Clint Hurdle when um they had the fight with Amir Garrett at the trade deadline, 2019, his last year with the Pirates. And he was, like, the first guy out of the dugout ready to just swing on, like, Yasiel Puig. It's like, I, I kind of want a little bit of a nut job to be manager of this team. Because, of course, we know that there's not anything really happening nuts and bolts-wise to this roster that the manager's going to be a part well, of. Well, this is why I really like a guy, if we're going to go old school and a little crazy, I love Ron Washington as an option. Ron Washington, yep. the cocaine cowboy, first off. <laughs> Might be too crazy. I, first, he's an incredible coach. Incredible coach. <laughs> Fantastic. Like, see what he's done to the Braves infield. They have become fantastic field. Austin Riley had a unbelievable defensive year, and this was a guy who had basically just stones for hands. Marcus Semien credits Ron Washington with turning him from one of the worst defensive infielders in baseball to literally one of the best, almost overnight. It wasn't overnight. There was a lot of painstaking, tedious, hard work that was put in over years, but it took two years for Marcus Semien to be almost unplayable at shortstop to being a guy who's going to warrant... $25 $25 million on the free agent market this season. Like, Ron Washington, I think, if we're going to go the old school route, is my choice because he's he has the experience, that's for sure. He is loved around baseball. Everybody loves him. Now, he does love a little bit of the booger sugar. We can't ignore that. But Ron Washington wins baseball games. He brought the Rangers to the World Series two years in a row. They didn't win it. But goddamn, when's the last time the Mets have been to the two World Series back-to-back years? Uh, never. So... I, I don't disagree with you there, but again, I don't I don't see how that's very different from Clint Hurdle. Because, <laughs> I think that you're just picking on Clint Hurdle. Because Ron Washington, like everyone around baseball talks about how great Ron Washington is, and it's just a matter of time before he gets the next job. Clint Hurdle and Buck Showalter have been banished from baseball. Nobody wants them. Nobody wants to even get those guys near a baseball team because they're just like skeletons that are decrepit and just they seep in this awful information to your head. I'm pretty sure Clint Hurdle is one of the guys like Mike Sosha who's like, you talk about analytics in this locker room, I'm going to punch you in the face. I don't want that. If I don't want that either. If that's true, then he won't get the job. But I just think, I'm not, you don't even necessarily have to use Clint Hurdle as the person here, but just the concept that this Mets team might do better with a very experienced manager who's aware that he's going to have no power. Okay. As long as this person's aware that they'll have no power, I think it's totally fine just to have a, a semi-lunatic in the clubhouse who's going to rattle, rattle cages and keep guys in check. And who's also going to be respected by the New York news media because they're going to be ruthless to whoever this is because they always are. Yeah, uh, that would be fair. Uh, interesting guy here that is listed as well, Eduardo Perez. And the reason I say he's interesting is because we've been talking about Team Puerto Rico a lot on this podcast. We talk about it all the time. Eduardo Perez has managed Team Puerto Rico. 
Miguel Cairo is also Puerto Rican. Yeah, so I wonder if that will play into it a little bit as well. I know Beltran's also Puerto Rican. I know we're kind of making a weird storyline out of nothing here. But there is, like, especially if Javi Baez comes back, there's a Puerto Rican, like, fair little brotherhood with this team. Cairo's Venezuela, okay. my bad. Um, that, I mean, could lead to maybe a guy like Eduardo Perez, who was in the talks uh, in the previous manager search. I think he was what the was top three, yeah, top three option. So follows me on Twitter, so that'd be cool. Um, but I, I wouldn't be against Eduardo Perez because while I don't necessarily like go, ooh, Eduardo Perez, the brightest baseball mind in the world, we have to sign him. Like you said, he probably is a guy that will be very open to listening to what the analytics department and what you know the guys up top have to say. Incredibly open. I just the one thing that I question about Eduardo Perez is whether he actually has the fire, and we have seen him manage on the world scale and he did seem to have some of that but whether he can that emotion and that that kind of crazy attitude and energy every single day if he can withstand the full rigors of 162 game major league season yeah and then i guess to talk on the last guy here john gibbons no fucking shot in the world should we get john gibbons no, please no i don't I, john gibbons moves the needle negatively yes no that is not a good one there but Mets manager search again it's not going to really happen until we get a president of baseball ops or a gm because those guys really make the decisions at the end of the day and those guys are monumentally more important than manager of a team. You are thinking about the wrong era of baseball if you think the manager has a lot to do with the success of a baseball team. Yep. Truly. And that kind of leads into our next little piece here about we got some GM rumors. And we saw it. I don't know what Twitter account said it. I don't know how credible it is. It was like MLB Network News, which doesn't seem reputable at all. I think they have a couple of thousand followers. Yeah. But some for every single person in the Mets world went kind of crazy with this rumor because it's a really cool rumor that everybody wants to now start to believe me included yeah paul de podesta you might know that name moneyball cleveland browns oakland a's it was, it was seattle too a little bit i think even at one san point san diego san diego he's been all over and the, the place for a very long time paul de podesta possibly considered the lead candidate for the mets gm spot and that's kind of huge whether it's true or not i mean even to talk about it kind of exciting it wasn't referenced yet because the browns had a game the day this dropped against one of the best nfl games i've seen in a very long time browns versus chargers and i think a big reason it was one of the best games is because those two teams who were laughing stocks for most of the 2000s have now become two of the three or four smartest teams in the nfl and Deep Podesta is a massive reason behind the Browns' switch. He was signed on by them to be the chief strategy officer, which is, that's just such a fucking cool title. <laughs> like, I, I handle the strategy for this organization. In 2016, the Browns have had a massive renaissance since then. I'm going to compare chief strategy officer of the football team to president of baseball ops for a baseball team. But the weird parts about this situation is that he just signed a five-year deal to remain with the Browns this offseason. He himself has oversaw the organization through three, three different general managers between Sashi Brown, Mr. Draft Pick, John Dorsey, Mr. Football, now Andrew Berry, Mr. Pro Football Focus. And of course, during that time, the Browns have gone, like I said, from a laughing stock to one of the premier franchises in football, which is even bizarre to say. So I think it'd be a slam dunk to get him back into baseball because he's simply brilliant and success seems to follow him. The other side of that coin is, again, he did just sign a five-year deal, so you're going to have to offer big, huge money to let him go. Also, the fact that he's willing to sign a five-year deal means that he is very stable, comfortable, and he kind of wants to see this Browns thing through. Because Paul DiPodesta, while he's very famous for Moneyball and his role with the A's, he is a football guy at heart. I believe he was a college football player whatever Ivy League school he went to. When he took this Browns job, he said it was always a dream of his to run an NFL team rather than a baseball team, which I'm sure he's had plenty of opportunities to do. 
The other complicated aspect here is that he worked with the Mets for five years, from 2010 to 2015, as the vice president of scouting and player development for the Mets under Sandy Alderson. So while we're talking about this massive offseason of rejuvenating the organization, replenishing the talent, and changing things, this will be more of the same because he has ties to most of the guys on this roster. Yeah. Being that they're all homegrown. Now, to be fair, he has drafted pretty well, and it seems like his scouting and his at least understanding of talent, I mean, you can even look at what he's done with the Browns, like the quality of players that have come in, whether it's through the draft or just any sort of evaluation, this guy kind of seems to know that something is there. I mean, look at the guys that he brought in with the Mets. There's some good names. Oh, no, he's incredible. Especially, again, you watch his drafts that he's had with the Browns. The Browns are notorious for having the worst drafts in the NFL history before he got there. And now, recently, they've been having some of the best. But those six years that he was with the Mets, 2010 to 2015, he was the parts of the drafts that gave the Mets Matt Harvey, Jacob deGrom, Michael Fulmer, Tomas Nito, Paul Sewald, Chris Flexen, Brandon Nimmo, Luis Guillorme, Jeff McNeil, Michael Conforto, and this one shocked me to my core, Shane McClanahan, who Paul D. Podesta made a point to take in the 27th round of the 2015 draft. Of course, he went to college, South University of South Florida, and probably was not seriously going to consider the Mets, but there's clearly an eye for talent giving you those names that just happened. In a five-year stretch to get 10, 11 Major League Baseball players, some of the high, high-end Major League Baseball players, that's a massive achievement. Of course, he was also a part of the front office that drafted Gavin Cicchini and Desmond Lindsay in first rounds, but you're not going to hit every MLB draft. Dom Smith as well, wherever you want to place him in this list, because we don't the book is still out on Dom. He did reach the major league, so that's a victory. But he is really smart and very successful, and he's incredibly good. But again, you'd be pulling in a guy who has prior connections to most of this team. And I think that is uh, not exactly what we've talked about wanting for the last few weeks. Yeah, it's it's weird because we definitely want something new. We want something fresh. We don't want a lot of the old or new old, essentially, or whatever that saying is going to be. And he would be that. It would not be new. It would not be something like outside. It, it would basically be like him coming back. Like He took a little break to go with the Browns and then just be now with the Mets again. So he was with the Mets for six years. I don't think people really remember or realize that. I know it was kind of a shock to me. I remember him being a part of the front office, but I don't recall his role being this prominent, especially the fact that Alderson signed him. And him and Alderson also worked together for multiple years in San Diego before they both came to the Mets. When the Padres organization was floundering and Bud Selig basically installed Sandy Alderson as the CEO for that team to keep them afloat and make sure that they were handling their operations in a proper way. And Sandy also was in Oakland, I believe, when he was there as well. I think for maybe a tiny bit of time, but possibly only as an advisor, Sandy went to the commissioner's office in the early 2000s. They probably just spent a few years back and forth, but Sandy did most of his work with Oakland in the 90s. Yeah, But still, like, there's definitely that connection there, whether that's a good connection or not. I mean, let's just say it how it is. He definitely would be an improvement over what we've had. I think that's... It'd be thrilling. Be, we'd be excited. Is this the right move? Is there something better out there? I mean, we know David Stern's name has been floating around. We've also got the two Dodgers guys right now names floating around, which I love to see that. I love to see Dodgers execs names flying around because they're just simply one of the best organizations in baseball. Definitely. And I, I do like these two Dodgers execs a lot because I figure based on their relationship and each of the roles they've occupied over the last few years in Los Angeles, they would kind of come as a package deal. And that deal would be Josh Burns becomes the president of baseball operations and Brandon Gomes becomes the general manager. Burns is a little bit older and he's already been an acting GM in Arizona and with um, the Padres, 
while Gomes is only is only 37 years old, he's been with the Dodgers organization for six years as an assistant GM and a vice president of baseball operations. Actually, pitching six years ago with the Rays, which I thought was crazy. I don't really remember him at no. all. But those two guys just seem to have been a big part of what's gone on with this Dodgers team in the last five years when they've gone from stable, good major league team to sensational, historical powerhouse. And they've both held roles where you can see this one jump being something that is logical for both of them. And I think that that jump is what, in the CBA, this could be incorrect. I had this conversation with somebody recently. That allows you to interview somebody and like like seize them for a role. Like I know that was a problem with Stearns because I think he's already the president of the Brewers. So since you can't offer somebody an improvement in title or a raise, they can block you from interviewing them because the lateral move is something that they don't really allow GMs to do, which is so so fucking stupid. Yeah, it's weird. But, I mean, like, it makes sense. Mets have talked about wanting to be Dodgers East. Steve Cohen has said it himself. You want to be Dodgers East, you go get some of the Dodgers guys. I mean, whether you want to believe it or not, it'd be foolish to think that these guys didn't have some sort of play in the Dodgers' success of recent times. I mean, even you just look at, like, the farm system. I know they bring in a lot of these, like, talented players. They brought in Trey Turner, Max Scherzer. But you look at their farm system, it's constantly loaded with talent. They're constantly getting the best prospects. And then even taking guys like Max Muncy, Chris Taylor, guys who were basically bums and turning them into really, really good players, there's something going on there that's right with the Dodgers. I'd love for the Mets to get some of that. And I think that when we talk about these roles a lot, it's important for fans to know that the guys at the top are doing more of the um of the full like philosophical like organizational changes, doing more of the big picture stuff, while the guys directly below are doing the day-to-day things. Josh Burns is the vice president of baseball operations. So that means he's involved with much more of the nitty-gritty day-to-day aspects of baseball operations that President Andrew Friedman is not. Brandon Gomes is the assistant GM of the team and the vice president of the organization. That means he is also he's doing more of the nitty-gritty day-to-day things like transactions, player movement, and the things that a general we, we think of a general manager doing, but that they don't actually carry out day to day. So both of these guys, as a package deal, sandwiched on top of each other, are, become a very logical president of baseball operations and general manager. They have good rapport, they have good experience, and they have very obvious successes to point to. And it's also important to note that last year, we're kind of under the radar, but during spring training, or possibly in about middle of February, the Mets hired Ben Zaumer away from the Dodgers. He was their vice president of analytics, and now he's our head of analytics. That's an instant connection right there. People have all worked together who have a good, I'm hoping a good, seemingly a good chemistry that could become part of our front office machine that we're trying to build. Yeah, which we definitely need. And especially going into this offseason where the Mets have a lot of question marks and a lot of guys to possibly bring back and a lot of guys to pay. Tim Britton wrote an article about the Mets payroll and there is, there's a lot to talk about here. There, Mets are like in a weirdly bad spot, I want to say. Like there's a lot of tough, tough decisions that are going to be made. And honestly, if the Mets want to do anything, we're going to have to blow through the luxury tax, it feels like. I wouldn't call the Mets situation bad. I would call it turbulent. Yeah, okay, that's a better word. SAT word of the day. I don't want to scare anybody here. I would say the Mets have a very turbulent roster, a very fluid situation going on right now. Because realistically, the Mets only have seven guys on legitimate guaranteed contracts. And those guys are Francisco Lindor, Jacob deGrom, Taiwan Walker... Robinson Cano, Carlos Carrasco, James McCann, Trevor May. Those seven guys combined are making $104.5 million next year and $113.7 million against the competitive luxury tax when you account for all of their bonuses and benefits and whatnot. Of course, 
everything we're saying right now might be nonsense because we don't know what the CBA is going to look like and where that, even if the CBA remains exactly 100% the same, where that competitive luxury tax line is going to be because it moves three, five, eight million, depending on what's going on in the league year. And I'm sure it will go down because of how much less money everyone's apparently made recently. With those seven guys, you're noticing that we're missing a lot of very talented names off this roster that we've been used to for a long time or a short period of time. But Noah Syndergaard does not have a contract. Javier Baez definitely does not have a contract. Malcolm Foyle does not have a contract. Marcus Stroman will make everybody very aware that he does not have a contract. Aaron Loop, the one-year wonder, does not have a contract. Then you have your depth guys, VR, Rich Hill, Yaris Familia. Those guys have no contracts, and the Mets don't have the immediate right to re-sign any of them besides offering a qualifying offer to the first three guys I mentioned, uh, Noah Syndergaard, Javier Baez, Mal Conforto. It's funny that the one player option on this team is Kevin Pillar, which is bizarre. Nuts. He has an option to come back to the Mets for three mil, or they it's like a vesting dual option, so I think then he could possibly decline that, but the Mets would have to pay a million to buy him out. It's weird. I don't know. I don't think he would accept one year for three million. I almost hope he doesn't. I just I care so little about Kevin Pillar at this point. I think clearly he's better. But again, this roster doesn't exactly have a lot of guaranteed players on it right now, so we will need to amass a lot of depth, whether that is Kevin Pillar or not. And it's because most of this team is arbitration eligible. So there's going to be some pretty significant pay increases for guys on the roster, namely Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil, who are both first-time eligible. Yeah, and they're going to get paid. Um, I mean, not necessarily McNeil as much as Alonzo, but Alonzo's due for quite the pay bump here. Pete Alonzo's in position to have one of the most lucrative first arbitration agreements ever and that literally in the history of the system just because he's hit so many home runs in his first three years as a player that he's going to be looking at a number that's between seven and eight million dollars which is very rare for guys entering the first year of arbitration like i figure mcneil will make about four yeah which maybe four four point two yeah which would be fair for them but pete is going to get a fat rate i've seen a range from mcneil anywhere from like the high twos to the low like to high three or high threes low fours kind of thing so like it's really going to depend on i guess you know how they arbitrate is that the word arbitrate yeah and arbitrations we've learned from other organizations in the past have absolutely and in totality ruined relationships between players and organizations. We all remember Dylan Batances, the Yankees fighting tooth and nail to take all his money because he had no saves, and they were viewing saves as very valuable in arbitration in that particular hearing. Mookie Betts. So you can see a guy like Jeff McNeil, whose number one attribute is his batting average, and said the Mets arbitrators will come to the table and say that we have proof that batting average does not lead to run production, tell Jeff McNeil he's an asshole to his face, and then he will probably hate them forever because that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah, no, it's, it's arbitration is not fun. Settling out of arbitration, no. that's fun. We like that. We like a good settle. Don't have to air our grievances to each other, but... You don't really want the players on your team and your team itself having lawyers battle each other for 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 what will actually turn out to be pennies on the dollar in terms of Steve Cohen's wealth. But then we also, in terms of first arbitration guys, we have Tomas Nido, Luis Guillorme, and our boy Drew Flo. None of those guys are going to break the bank, but they're all going to come back to this team with modest raises. And then you have the guys from mid-arbitration, Brandon Nimmo, who has been open to working out a contract extension, Seth Lugo, who we don't really know what's really going on with him, Edwin Diaz is going to get a fat raise because he continues to save a lot of games to strike a lot of guys out. Miguel Castro, Dominic Smith, and J.D. Davis. All of those guys are going to be tendered and receive modest raises. Tim Britton, everyone should read this article. If you're subscribed to The Athletic, Tim Britton does great work. But he estimates that that group of guys I just said, between also McNeil and Pete, their payroll this year is going to raise from $21 million to $35 million. Generally, you, could, you can kind of put these things in a ballpark. It, that could be off by a million or two in each direction, but... That's a good way to tell. And you add that $14 million in raises, you bring Robinson Cano's $20 million back on the books, 
you type in raises right here for uh, for Lindor and DeGrom. They're just a part of their contract. And you're looking at a roster that is suddenly not complete, but mildly expensive. Yeah, no, the Mets roster is like weirdly expensive. You, it doesn't really make sense when you look at it. But like you said, Lindor, DeGrom, Cano. Cano's the real killer. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is that $20 million could be used so well elsewhere. So well. And we have to give it to Robinson Cano, who, whether you guys like it or not, it's going to be a part of this team next year, probably playing third base. I told you that in May, and you yelled at yeah, me. Yeah, because I was mad. I didn't want to see him there. I wanted all positive vibes. The Mets were doing good things in May. I wanted to be excited for the future. Uh, yeah, Robinson Cano's probably going to get 400 at-bats next year. I don't know. Maybe he could we spike his food, give him some steroids he doesn't know about, and just suspend him again for another year. I don't want to see him on the field because... It seemed like when he was playing well, you want to know why? Oh, yeah, because he was cheating, because he was taking steroids. Like, oh, that's it's just so annoying because that's so much money that could be used elsewhere, and we're just going to have to go to him. So much money. Then, just to again wrap up the current players with major league contracts in the Mets roster, you have Robert Gazelman, Joey Lucchese, Trevor Williams, Jose Peraza, and Jose Martinez, who are all, I would say, the most obvious non tender candidates on the team, unless something insane happens with like JD Davis or Dom, which I don't expect, just because, or Guillaume. Or, I, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Just basically, those are the guys. Neil, maybe, but I doubt that they let any of those guys go. But Gazelman's probably a guy who is not coming back, I would assume. I don't know. He's just had continued to have arm trouble while not being super effective. Lucchese will probably stick around. They'll just let him rehab under their watch and then get two more years of cheap Joey Lucchese afterwards, chirp it up. And then Trevor Williams becomes interesting. I was wrong about his option before. While he does still have a minor league option, he has the right to refuse that and just become a free agent. So you're going to have to communicate with Trevor Williams whether he's willing to basically be a taxi pitcher for this year and get his guaranteed whatever the money will be there. It probably won't be that lucrative, maybe like a million-ish, or whether he just wants to hit the open market and probably get more money. I'm assuming he'll get more money in the open market, but then he won't have an option. I don't know how many teams would be willing to sign Trevor Williams to a full guaranteed major league contract. Yeah, you know? I mean, the Cubs had him and the Pirates had him. It seems like he's kind of willing to just play for anybody at this point. So uh, Trevor Williams, if he's going to cost, I mean, anything above, I'm seeing $3.8 million, That's too much for Trevor Williams. It's just simply too much, especially if he doesn't have that option. I think that I think it's worth it if he just says I'm willing to accept the option, which I guess that's big, but I don't know. I feel yeah. like for four million dollars, like we saw some guys this offseason who got signed for less who could like really make a splash over Trevor Williams four million dollars. I mean, but like who the the benchmark for starting pitchers is about ten mil. That's what Taiwan got. Drew Smiley made eleven. Like you, if you want a guy who's actually a starting pitcher without like a like a hint of stuff, you're you have to go above ten million dollars. You do, you simply do. And Trevor Williams, while he's not sexy and he's not exciting or fun, really, at all, like, this is kind of what you need to fill out a roster. And this is what you do to raise your floor, have Trevor Williams give you innings instead of Gerard Eichhoff. Yeah, no, I mean, Rodon got $3 million last year, which I know was a weird case coming off of Tommy John Yeah, and pitched in two years. But even a guy yeah. like Robbie Ray got $8 million. Like, I'd rather take Trevor Williams $4 million and give it half of a contract of someone with the caliber like Robbie Ray. That looks good in retrospect, but if I would have asked you that question last March, you would have said, fuck Robbie Ray. I don't want to get anywhere near my team. $8 million for a year? I'd give him a chance. I gave Drew Smiley a chance for 10 or $11 million for a year. I'd give Robbie Ray 8 I'm going to put a little microphone next time we have a conversation about this year's free agent class. And the next year, when one of those guys pops off, I'm going to get you on tape saying, that guy sucks. I don't want him near the do Mets. Do it. Do it. Get me. Catch me in a lie. I dare you. <laughs> But again, all in all here, assuming non-tenders go to Peraza, Martinez, and Gazelman, and that we include 
those arbitration raises, the Mets payroll right now with only 21 players rostered is 165 million and 185 million against the tax. That is basically missing two to three starting pitchers, at least one outfielder, an infielder or two, a lefty reliever, an additional reliever, and that is with a black hole a catcher that's going to cost you about 15 million dollars. Yeah, it's going to be That's bad. a weird offseason. Mets I I really do think they're going to have to kind of just blow through the luxury tax if they really want to do anything. If they, I don't see how they make the playoffs if they don't. Yeah, it's going to be pretty impossible. Like, Strowman, we saw today on Twitter, clapping back at Jack Ramsey of Mets Twitter, who said, I, if Strowman wants $25 million, I tell him to walk, and Strowman basically told him to go fuck himself. I mean... Can I, can I read yeah, it? Yeah, read it. It's, it's very funny. This is, this is one of the best responses I've ever seen on Twitter, so shout out Marcus Strowman, because we, we love him, because I don't want him to yell at me. <laughs> Jack Ramsey tweeted, if Marcus Strowman wants at least $25 million a year, comma, I'm letting him walk, period. Which that's a lot of uh, what's what's I don't even know what the word is. What's the fuck? What's <laughs> you you forgot punctuation? <laughs> I forgot punctuation. That's a lot of punctuation for a tweet, especially a tweet that has less than sixty characters. Marcus Stroman responded in. Let's see how much time this took. Okay, so this was last night, eleven twenty p.m. Marcus Stroman responded eight seventeen a.m. That's fine. Good luck replacing my production for the next five years, though. Athletes trend down because of their lack of work ethic, especially as they get older. I'm different, which that's that's a claim. <laughs> Wherever I end up, they're getting a real one who will stay in the field and compete every five days. Shouting emoji, shrug emoji. That is peak Twitter right there. The fact that a pretty uh, nondescript member of Mets Twitter, who does he does fine, fine for himself, but at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure he's like a 19-year-old kid in college studying political science. To be responded to by the up- pending free agent on the Mets, one of the most valuable pitchers in the National League this year, is you can't you don't get any better than this. This app shouldn't be free. And it also leads you to believe that Marcus Stroman is gonna want twenty five million dollars a year from what it sounds like. Minimum. <laughs> so like if the Mets want to bring him back, it's twenty five million a year, it looks like is gonna be the starting point of that conversation. And that immediately puts you at the competitive balance tax if you give one give out one twenty five million dollar contract to Marcus Stroman. Because that number, while it changes a lot and we don't know what it's gonna look like next year, usually hangs out around two hundred ten million dollars. The Mets are at 185 million, and the roster is nowhere near complete. The Mets don't even have a AAA roster. They have like three players in the, in, in the entire Syracuse organization right now. There needs to be a lot of money spent if we want to compete next year, which is such a massive change from where we were just a few months ago. I don't know if we're going to include this, but I have a hot take here. Okay, ten million dollars for Edwin Diaz seems to be kind of what he's going to get. Is it worth looking to trade Edwin because of that money could be more valuable elsewhere? No, definitely okay. not. Where are you going to close it for $10 million right now? Well, you could take the raise approach of we but, have... But then, you have to, but then you have to take the raise okay. approach. Taking the raise approach is not like we can do that for it's three fair, days. You have to commit your entire organization to seeking relievers for the next 12 months. Every single day of the year, you have to look at relievers and understand how to maximize guys' repertoires and how to, once you get guys into your organization, improve them. I don't doubt that Jeremy Hefter can do this and be good at it, but... While we can take Miguel Castro and turn him from deplorable to acceptable, we're not taking Andrew Kittredge and turning him from acceptable to okay. one of the best relievers in baseball. That's very like, true. And also, a lot of these guys that the Rays have gotten, they have traded legitimate assets for. I think about trading Nick Solak for Peter Fairbanks. Like, the Mets don't have the organizational depth, the luxury, to be able to send middling prospects who may or may not be actual everyday major league players to pull very competitive relievers. I just don't think the Mets have the skill or the acumen to do that raise approach. Maybe one day they will, and that'll be great. But if you trade Edwin Diaz, I think you'll sorely miss having a, a, a semi-reliable 100-mile-an-hour thrower in the back of your ball. No, fair. It definitely was a hot take. I wanted to see where you were going with that one because 
I feel like there probably are some Mets fans who have that feeling as well. And not that this is something that I actually want to do, but I bet you there are Mets fans out there that are like, trade Diaz, let's get rid of him. No, definitely. And if you look at the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Rays, three of the best bullpens in baseball, like they've found great relievers from nowhere. Alex Vesia, everyone's going to look at next year and be like, this is the best pitcher in baseball. Phil Bickford. Fuck Phil Bickford. (laughs) But like Blake Trinian and Corey Knievel, two guys who basically nobody wanted for the last two years. The Dodgers are like, we'll bring you back to your prime. Give us us a month. Joe Kelly's been sick, a guy who's like had a turmoil career with his production. And they paid him serious money. So he's making at least ten million a year, probably similar to what Edwin Diaz is making. So think about a guy in the open market like Joe Kelly garnering the exact same money as Edwin Diaz, and then tell me if you don't think that's a good guy to keep around. Yeah, no, at his, when you put, at his skill when you put level. it that way, it's definitely uh, definitely worth the money at that point. And then I guess we'll talk about our final thing here, which was a super interesting poll that you got sent that people wanted to hear our opinion on. Get this cat's name because he's a he's a valuable listener. I'm pretty sure it's Noah Croning, but I'm gonna just get it to make sure. I had never checked my um my message requests on Instagram before, and that was probably a good thing because I had like a shocking amount for how how little notoriety <laughs> I actually have in, in 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 the world. But yeah, my guy Noah, Noah Croning, big fan of the pod, very active with both of us and the podcast on Twitter. He's a homeboy, but he reached out, told us we're doing a great job, and then he sent this very interesting Anthony DeComo poll from sometime in the middle of last week when things were kind of slow, and he wanted our opinion. And this poll was. If given the opportunity to trade Francisco Alvarez to the Brewers for their president of baseball operations, David Stearns, would you do it? And this is actually kind of pertinent because there was a time in, I think, 2002 or 2003 where the Mets were looking for a manager after Bobby Valentine. They had the opportunity to trade for Lou Pinella, who was one of the most respected and notable managers in the history of baseball at the time, but even still to this day. And they could have traded this young 18-year-old, nondescript shortstop to possibly get him. That shortstop was Jose Reyes. That trade would have looked awful in hindsight. The Rays eventually did make that trade for some guy who wound up being a no-namer, a name who's lost my mind, I didn't even include the notes. But this is something interesting for the Mets because while a manager back then probably had a very big influence on the game, something we've talked about a lot on this specific show, a president of baseball operations could change the entire way your team runs and basically alter the standing of your franchise seemingly forever. So I want to ask you, Mark, who would you rather have on the Mets, Francisco Alvarez, super prospect, or David Stearns, potentially generational executive with ties to New York? I feel like brain tells me David Stearns. Heart tells me Francisco Alvarez. I'm attached to Francisco. Now that he's done the interview with us and we've seen this guy play, he's such a beast. He's so good and at a position that's so hard, so hard to get actual talent at, at the catcher position. His value is immense. Even at the worst, like, let's just say that we don't get David Stearns in this trade, right? We keep Francisco Alvarez. At some point, you could probably trade him for, like, a massive piece, a massive piece for Francisco Alvarez if you want to make that trade. President of Baseball Ops, David Stern would be sick, but I I can't go against the player here. I'm going Francisco Alvarez on this one. What about you? I, I don't. I don't not want to go Francisco Alvarez just because we've seen from other teams in baseball the kind of position it puts your roster in when you um when you have a player who's basically free who plays like a potential superstar like the Ray the the Blue Jays this offseason are going to be able to do incredible things with that roster because of how much production they get out of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette. 
you see the Padres before they re-signed Tatis to this massive contract. You saw the last two years how much money they were able to allocate to other positions because of how much production you're getting. You see the Braves basically maintain the stable floor because they've stolen the production and the talent from Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna for their entire adult primes. If Francisco Alvarez comes up, and his projections kind of lend itself to this, where basically the second-year player, he could be worth somewhere between four and five wins. Something like we're seeing, going to see Wanda Franco do over a full season next year, of course. Not everyone is a complete agreement over Francisco Alvarez's potential. We've seen his prospect rankings range from top four on Fangraphs to, like, low 30s on Pipeline. I trust Fangraphs because they're generally smarter and they're better over time than Alvarez, but having an executive like Stearns will make possibly everybody on your team better like we've seen what he's done with that brewers organization they turn nonsense into aces like corbin burns was no type of prospect ever brandon woodruff was a middling prospect josh Hader was a good prospect but he was a starting pitcher who didn't have any command aaron ashby has come out of nowhere adrian hauser adrian hauser's era was 3-1 this year eric lauer Eric Lauer. I mean, that they made, they made that trade. And now they look like geniuses. After year after, Trent Grisham looked like a superstar in his rookie year with the Padres. Like there are things that the Brewers do that we can't even understand. Jake Cousins, Kirk Cousins, his fucking cousin, the Cousins' cousin, has become one of the best relievers in baseball. Devin Williams, they invented a pitch. Like, and they even have these super prospects coming down in the bottom of their system that no one's talking about yet because they're so young. And while the Brewers, every ranking that comes out, they have like the twenty third, twenty sixth, twenty eighth best farm system. Three guys: Hedbert Perez. Joey Weimer and my boy Joey, my boy Joey, and Felix Valerio are all right now between low A and high A, and I think Pedbert might still be in the uh, the CPX. All three of those guys are going to be probably top fifty prospects within the next eighteen to twenty four months. This guy is doing things with an organization that are akin to the Rays and the Dodgers, but even more so the Rays because they don't have any kind of payroll. But I want to bring everyone's attention to a poll that was on Twitter about three years ago. And it was, who would you rather have for the next 10 years? And the options were Giannis Antetokounmpo. Ooh, oh, wow, God, that was a that. butchering of it. Goodness. Giannis Antetokounmpo. Who? I actually, I've actually never said his name. Would you right. like me to say Giannis, it? Yeah, you, you Giannis said Antetokounmpo? <laughs> Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis Antetokounmpo and Brad Stevens. And who would you rather have? And this was when the Celtics were balling out. Brad Stevens was a genius. And Giannis had been ousted from the playoffs once again early on. And the poll was 86 to 14% Brad Stevens. And of course, in basketball, one player will have a much bigger impact on a team's success because there's only 10 guys on the court and you're five guys on your own team. And we saw Giannis literally take over and win a championship by himself this year. That won't happen in baseball. But it just kind of goes to show that sometimes that we will overrate guys in a front office or as a head coach. And really, it's just by a happenstance of the other people around them. Like if David Stearns comes to the Mets, He's not bringing the whole party with him. We're not getting everyone on the player development team. We're not getting all the analytics guys. We're not getting all the assistants. We're just not. It's not possible. So there's no telling how he can get more guys in place to do the things he wants like he already has done one time. This is just really a philosophical debate, which is honestly kind of fun to think about. It's like a it's a pretzel. It's, I'm twisted all over the place because there's so oh, yeah. many different ways to go. And I don't really think there is a wrong answer by any means. Which is why, again... I don't think it's the right one yeah, either. It's it's impossible to answer. And the great thing is, uh, we'll never know because this isn't going to happen. So we don't ever actually have to have this serious conversation of like, did the Mets do the right thing? You're not you're not actually totally correct about that. What do you mean? The Brewers, like I said before, have the block to the right to block David Stearns from interviewing or seeking jobs elsewhere, especially if there's not an immediate increase in title. Similarly to how we'd have to possibly trade for like Bob Melvin. We have to use to trade for um, Lou Pinella. 
there is a situation where the Brewers extort you, for lack of a better term. If you want this to happen, we need an asset. I just don't see the Mets doing it. Even if, like, I don't know. I don't see a world where Steve Cohen makes that move. I think he'll just pay someone a lot of money. I, I agree with you, but it's not an impossible thing. Maybe it is impossible. I just could be misinterpreting the CBA here, but it's a fascinating thought exercise. Oh, super, super fascinating. And luckily, you know, we probably aren't going to actually have to talk about this in serious thought outside of today. But, whew, that is that is a tough question to answer without a doubt. Big time toughie. And while we're wrapping up the show here, I want to shout out another listener who DM'd me the other day. My guy Levin hails from Germany. He sent me just an incredibly nice message, like possibly a thousand words, about how much that we've changed his view of baseball, how we've made him fall in love with the Mets, how much he loves listening to us. Talked to him for a while on Instagram. I talked about DHgate because he said he really wanted a black jersey, but the MLB doesn't ship to Germany. So I gave him the link. He's going to be a fellow DH brother. My Jeremy Hefner jersey is over here somewhere. Hopefully he sticks with the team. But it's just, it's great. It's great to be like recognized like that. We talked baseball for a little while. He's a very nice, very nice young man. And it's fun to, it's nice to see that what we're saying out here is actually being listened to somewhere. It's good that the Mets Up podcast get in this global reach. We have the guy from Germany. We had our English friend who, by the way, is a supporter of the podcast. Uh, we saw it on Anchor. Graham Hickson has to be him. It has, it has to, be. to be. That's the most English name I've ever heard. Graham Hickson. So, Graham, Graham appreciate you supporting the podcast. That really does help us out over here. Um, but, yeah, it's really cool to see that you guys are, you know, loving the podcast, supporting us all over the world, not just in our little New York, you know, bubble over here, but in Germany and mm-hmm. even in California and Florida. It's cool. We had that guy in Trinidad and Tobago who was listening to us. Yes. Don't know if he's still around. No. We've fallen like a rock down the Israeli uh, baseball podcast ranking, so we got to work on that all to our Israeli listeners out there. But uh, overall, doing pretty good stuff here, and there is so much more to talk about with the New York Mets here. We have a lot planned for the next episode, and that's without any news happening. I mean, we want to do the uh, Mets quiz where we go over every single Met in the 2021 season. This episode ran a little bit longer than we thought. So we're going to do it this one. We're going to push it to the next episode, and that might get pushed until we actually have nothing to talk about here. But we're going to try that out. Uh, we're going to start breaking down free agents, going to talk about targets, and as the managerial search and GM and president of baseball operations search goes, we'll continue to talk about that. So make sure you guys are following us everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTube channel at MetStup Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at MetStup Give James a follow on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Me at Giraffe Neck Mark with a C. And that's pretty much it for episode number 56 of the Meth Stuff Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching. And we'll catch you next time, uh, sometime next week, episode number 57. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you later.